0: one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. If you or someone you love needs to talk to someone about issues that have been brought up by the content of this show, please contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counseling Service on 1-800-737-732. Or alternatively, you can contact the National Crisis Support and Suicide Prevention Service, Lifeline, on one 3 The 2018 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Dennis Mukwege and Nadia Murad for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. In this show, I speak with Susan Hutchinson, a civil military professional with experience in government, military, and non-government organizations. Susan is the architect of Prosecute Don't Perpetrate campaign, calling for the investigation and prosecution of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. I also speak with Nikki Marzak, a genocide scholar and survivor advocate. Her research focuses on women's experiences of genocide and the transgenerational effects of genocide. First up, let's hear from Nikki.
1: When uh, ISIS attacked the Yazidis in August of uh, 2014, I could see immediately that there were a lot of parallels in the way that the community was targeted, just as there had been in the Armenian case. And I guess I wondered at the time how, you know, how there could be so little help for the Yazidis when the world could clearly see what was happening. So I became involved in, in some activism around the Yazidi cause, and uh, that has included advocating for the needs of the community.
0: Can you please expand on how, uh, when it comes to uh, genocide and armed conflict, how women and girls are disproportionately impacted?
1: So what we know is that gender has an impact on um, both how victims are targeted by perpetrators and also in the way that genocide is actually experienced and remembered by the survivors. So in the case of ISIS, targeting men and women in very specific ways was a deliberate strategy and it was really it was designed to dehumanize individuals to destroy the family unit and by extension really to damage the whole community because that's what genocide is about it's about shattering the continuity of the group. What we know is that uh, ISIS systematically separated men and women, killed large numbers of men and older women, and enslaved the younger women and children. And that enslavement was actually broader than sexual violence. So while it's important to highlight sexual violence as uh, you know a common and absolutely heinous crime during armed conflict and genocide, I think... I think it's also a mistake to only focus on sexual violence, um, as though that's the only horror that's experienced by women. Because certainly in the Yazidi case, uh, women were um, abducted and and trafficked on a large scale, uh, but they were also often forcibly married and their enslavement was also um, on a cultural, spiritual and social level. So they were cut off from their families and their culture they were forbidden from speaking their own language, they were forcibly converted, um, forced to change their names, and they were also subject to to what might be termed biological crimes such as forced pregnancy, forced abortion, forced com- contraception, and these crimes are very much part of the genocide mentality. So you'll have survivor testimonies that talk about perpetrators saying that they did not want any more Yazidi babies to be born and so women who were abducted while already pregnant were forced to have abortions. And some of the women who were you know, repeatedly sold have said that they were forced to take contraception so that they could be continually trafficked to different ISIS fighters. So these are some of the, the ways that Um, ISIS targeted women specifically. And there are also some crimes that are experienced by women in unique ways. For example, witnessing the murder of family members. And this is the case when men are um, targeted for immediate killing, which was the case in the Yazidi genocide, Um, that the women were often witness to the torture and murder of, of their family members. And you know things like having their children torn from their arms. These are things that um, that women uh, tend to experience during genocide. But I suppose hope. I also want to stress the the resilience of women during genocide, because I think sometimes um, an overemphasis on sexual violence it can have sometimes a negative effect. So you'll notice, for example, in the media, that Yazidi women are almost always referred to as sex slaves or former sex slaves. Mm. And um, I think that kind of language, while accurate, can also become a bit of a burden. So, you know, it's important to remember that survivors of genocide and sexual violence are are human beings, they're individuals, and to be kind of perpetually defined by their rape and torture, I think, can be quite problematic. So while we're recognising, rightly so, that sexual violence is... Um, a significant crime during armed conflict and genocide. I think more broadly, you know, a greater focus on the whole story and the whole person, um, the resilience as well as the crimes that they've endured um, could could be helpful to understanding the whole story.
0: Mm, definitely. Women on the line. And and for our listeners as well, can you explain a bit more about the Yazidi community and their ongoing experiences in relation to um, genocide and armed conflict?
1: Yeah, well, that's really um, a crucial point, that this is actually a genocide that is experienced by the Yazidi community as ongoing. So um, this is not an event that has finished um, for the Yazidi community. There are still around three thousand women and children missing. So, for survivors living in Australia and elsewhere, uh, you know some of their relatives may still be missing. Others have relatives in camp, and the family reunification process in Australia is really difficult. So, without that certainty of having family members together and knowing that their relatives are safe, I think it can be really difficult for refugees to settle. Because their minds are really focused on the memories of what they've been through and um, where their relatives might be. So this is really um, some a form of ongoing trauma for the community. And the other issue, of course, is the instability in Sinjar and the the sorts of challenges that Yazidis face in returning to their homeland. So, you know, ISIS destroyed uh, everything. The buildings were destroyed. There are landmines everywhere. Uh, and it takes time and cooperation to rebuild after genocide. So that that's really contributing to this feeling of being um, a genocide that's ongoing.
0: And in terms of... Um the work that you've done with Nadia Murad who was one of the recipients of the joint 2018 Nobel Peace Prize what kind of mm. impact if any has this award had for the Yazidi community
1: So Nadia first spoke of her experiences in late 2015 at the UN and she then embarked on a very very intensive global campaigning tour or advocacy tour to raise awareness of the Yazidi genocide. That was done under the auspices of an organization called Yazda and she now has her own organization called Nadia's Initiative. So Nadia came to Australia in August 2016 and we actually held some public events. We also met with the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Minister for Foreign Affairs Julie Bishop and they they really listened um, closely to Nadia's story. and. She requested a number of things for Australia to do, which, um, you know, were firstly to take more Yazidi refugees, and that's something that the government has really um, done over the last couple of years. There are now a number of communities in regional areas across New South Wales and Queensland. And uh, she also asked for Australia to recognise the Yazidi genocide, uh, as the US and, and other countries have done. And, you know, we em- we emphasised really the importance of domestic and international legal processes to hold ISIS fighters accountable, not just for terrorism-related offences, which the government was already looking at, but also for crimes against humanity and genocide, including the use of sexual violence and trafficking. So Nadi has actually been working tirelessly for several years now and, I think things like the Nobel Peace Prize certainly help in raising uh, public awareness of the Yazidi genocide and of um, conflict-related sexual violence more broadly. Uh, I think there are some practical things that might be meaningful for the community here, things like intensive and um, culturally appropriate trauma counselling. And there are programs overseas that uh, have taken into account both the individual trauma of survivors as well as the communal trauma uh, and, in addition to that, the transgenerational trauma that has resulted from centuries of persecution because Yazidis have experienced many genocides over the centuries and that collective memory can really have an impact on the healing process um, of current survivors. So I think, you know, culturally sensitive trauma counselling... that really goes to the heart of that collective trauma um, would be meaningful. I think, secondly, that there are a lot of survivors who actually want to tell their stories and they want people to know what happened to them. Um, I've had many survivors tell me that they want the world to know and that they're, you know, they want um, to talk about what happened to them. Um, but there are also some sort of complex ethics around how survivors can be provided with uh, informed choices about how to do that. And I think the risk of re-traumatisation is very real and the risk of secondary exploitation by the media is is very real as well.
0: Mm.
1: You know, the issue of family reunification, as I said before, that um, there are Yazidis who are living here and who have that constant worry about relatives who are in camps overseas. So I think, um, you know, if the government would consider looking at the uh, family reunification process. Um, I think that would really help the Yazidi community here. I think finally, I hope what would be really meaningful is to see some form of real justice. So that means um, the prosecution of ISIS fighters in both domestic and international court. I think Australia has a role to play in making sure that... um, any Australians who were involved in the Yazidi genocide are held accountable, and Australia also has a role to support the international process by, you know, collecting evidence from witnesses and survivors who are now in Australia. So I think I think there are many Yazidis who would appreciate the opportunity to provide testimony um, about the, the crimes that were committed against them, and to see justice done. So genocide. Historically, it has been very difficult to prosecute, but in this case, there's actually a great deal of evidence, including um, ISIS's own statements, which clearly say that they intended to wipe out the Yazidi population. So, that's something that Susan um, and her Prosecute Don't Perpetrate campaign has really taken the lead on in terms of um, influencing some action from the Australian government.
2: Women on the Line.
0: On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to Nikki Mazak, a genocide scholar and survivor advocate. We were discussing women's experiences of genocide and the transgenerational effects of genocide. Next up is my conversation with Susan Hutchinson, a civil military professional with experience in government, military and non-government organizations. Let's hear from Susan.
2: So I've been working in the area of Women, Peace and Security for about 10 years now. Um, And most recently, uh, I'm working on a PhD looking at how um, we operationalize these ideas in the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And I run this campaign called Prosecute, Don't Perpetrate, which is hoping to help end impunity for conflict-related sexual violence by getting governments to investigate and prosecute their own nationals who perpetrated these crimes in Syria and Iraq when they were fighting with Daesh.
0: Well, the UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1820 with regards to the use of sexual violence constituting as a war crime and weapon of war was introduced 11 years ago now in 2008. But it seems that it's only been in recent years that work in this area has been spoken about or recognized um, as with last year's Nobel Peace Prize. What are some of the challenges in prosecuting sexual violence war crimes?
2: Yeah, eighteen twenty was the second of the resolutions on women, peace and security, and for a long time in kind of the the, the really close circle of activists in this space, there was some frustration actually about the focus on. Um, often what's kind of almost a voyeuristic approach to conflict-related sexual violence, sometimes in the media, um, there's an interest in kind of grotesque details. But what has really been lacking is actual action on the ground. And often we see um, organisations and countries and individuals calling for the International Criminal Court um, to respond to when these crimes are, uh, are, are perpetrated. But in reality, the International Criminal Court is the court of last resort. In fact, member states who signed up to the Rome Statute in 1998, they are obliged to investigate and prosecute these crimes in their own courts. And that just doesn't happen. So we had a bit of a problem last year, the only... Trial that was focused on conflict-related sexual violence, where there was a where there was a successful prosecution was for a Congolese man by the name of Jean Pierre Bemba, um, and the court very surprisingly um, re- um, agreed to um, acquit his um, he, uh, to acquit him um, based on some kind of administrative details that sh- sort of shocked most of the legal community, um, which means that. Both the victims um, that suffered from the acts that he was accused of um, in the Central African Republic go without justice, as do those in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where um, he had spent most of his time and energy. And his influence in Congolese politics remains quite strong. He was deemed ineligible to run for the recent Congolese presidential elections, but he still maintains a really strong influence. Um, in politics in the region. And it's just really unreasonable and unfair to women around the world, um, to the victims of these really heinous crimes, that we, we haven't been able to do better in terms of bringing individual perpetrators to account and that he was, in a way, a symbolic, a, you know, a symbolic person um, in in the precedent that was set by his conviction and that conviction has now been overturned. So what Prosecute Don't Perpetrate does is is really target states who have signed the Rome Statute and have this obligation to investigate and prosecute um, these crimes themselves. Um, And in Syria and Iraq, we have this unique opportunity because for the first time in a long time, you know, there were tens of thousands of foreign fighters who flew into Syria and Iraq to fight with Daesh. And many of those You know, those those people came from over 100 countries and many of those countries are signatory to the Rome Statute. So our campaign very much calls on on those governments who have signed up to the Rome Statute um, to say, look, please um, investigate and prosecute the people who are nationals of your country for these crimes, these sexual violence crimes um, as war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide.
0: And so uh, for a lot of people, when we think about war crimes, we imagine illegitimate rebel forces such as Daesh or ISIS, Boko Haram, etc. But in recent years, light has been shed on sexual violence being used by armed forces uh, from the UN or various Western countries, including Australia. We've even seen the use of sexual violence in the INGO sector with the Oxfam cases. Um, what kind of work is being done to hold governments accountable with when their um, armies, or if you will, or other agencies are in conflict zones,
2: yeah, it's, it's a really substantial problem. Um, so, sexual violence, when it's perpetrated in as part of um, as part of war, is is a war crime, regardless of who um, of which side you're on. And, and and all countries under international law, everyone is supposed to be held accountable for that. Um, when we have... So there's been a lot of reports of the sexual exploitation and abuse conducted by UN peacekeeping troops around the world, and that's a deeply abhorrent, um, unacceptable behaviour, um, but it doesn't necessarily fall under the same sort of legal category as... Genocide and crimes against humanity that have been perpetrated against all groups, community groups like the Yazidi. There's a there's a really big problem around accountability for those crimes because whenever a nation state agrees to send their troops to another country, they usually sign a status of forces agreement um, or have an arrangement with the UN. So if anything happens at all, um, a perpetrator might be sent home, um, but it's highly unlikely that their host go- that the government Um, that they work for will then investigate and prosecute those crimes. So very often we're looking at people who are coming from countries with very um, poor gender equality um, and who don't necessarily have strong systems of gender justice in place. And that's, And that's a really big problem. But we've seen um, in cases like in Australia, you know, where we have really strong professional military forces, even here we don't really use the um, war crimes legislation um, that we have. Um, And it's important that professional militaries continue to uphold these really strong professional standards and making sure that if someone is behaving badly, they get held to account for that. In the international NGO sector, you know, there's also some some obviously ongoing problems there. I think the Australian Council for International Development has been working very hard to make sure that Australian-based NGOs are very aware of of you know what can be done to reduce the risks um, that staff will be behaving um, inappropriately, um, and that staff have to have police checks um, and working with children, um, working with children checks. Um, but it's something that everyone really needs to be conscious of, particularly um, in kind of post-colonial context and context where we're talking about where there's with significant power differential between someone who's coming into a developing country and, and, the, and the host country. Um, because as we've seen, you know, even in, um, with the um, Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse within Australia, when whenever there's so significant power imbalance you see there's a really strong opportunity for inappropriate behaviour um, and that's something that we really need to be on our guard about um, and make sure um, that we that, that we um, hold people accountable for their bad behaviour and that we do set up any mechanisms that we can to make sure that there's not an opportunity for people to behave that way.
0: Women on the line. And um, peace building is an integral part of civil society. What are some of the ways in which it can sustainably be fostered in these kinds of environments, um, if it's even achievable?
2: Well, and local communities are absolutely paramount for fostering long-term peace and security. Um, and all too often international security interventions overlook the, the local capacity that's there um, especially the capacity that women's groups have um, and that's very much the kind of the the other key component of the women' peace and security agenda so we're looking at minimizing um, conflict related sexual violence and ending impunity for that but also um, empowering um, women and girls um, and making sure that their voices are heard and providing opportunity for their leadership. So it's really important that um, intervening security forces listen to what local women have to say about the security situation that they find themselves in, about the, thre- the security threats that they face. Um, and then that they respond to that. If they're not responding to that, then there's then they're going to be reducing the ch- the chances of long-term sustainable peace and security. And we've really seen that, um, you know, in in the situation with the Yazidis. We know now that um, while the you know, the the sexual slavery market provided about twenty million dollars to to the economy of Daesh, now that. You know the international security assistance has really dropped back. It didn't really account for those for the thousands of women who were held in sexual servitude um, when they undertook operations to retake um, the cities of Mosul and Raqqa, and now Daesh are charging you know twenty to thirty thousand dollars per person for the community to buy back the freedom of of those Yazidi women and girls. So we're talking about now basically um, because we ignored. The, um, the security imperative for those women, we've basically allowed Daesh, um, a 90 million dollar income stream, um, going into the future, which is just, you know, a really clear example of, of why it's fundamentally important that we, uh, that the international community listens, um, to women's experience of conflict and insecurity, um, and accounts for that in the way that they design any interventions.
0: Mm, Definitely. Um, And so where can people go to find out more about the work you do as well as any other useful information on this issue? Absolutely. Well, I try to
2: keep news um, and current events up to date on the com website. We also have a Facebook page, Prosecute Don't Perpetrate, Uh, um, and it's really great. Um, Nadia Murad's initiative. Um, has a website
1: um, that has
2: been updated since she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize so people can donate to the work that she's doing there. Um, yeah, there's also some some actions if you'd like to take action um, on the Prosecute Don't Perpetrate website.
0: Great, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Susan. We really appreciate your time uh, for Women on the Line.
2: Thank you very much, Hope. Keep
0: up the good work. We've come to the end of my conversation with Susan Hutchinson, a civil military professional with experience in government, military, and non-government organizations. Before that... I also spoke with Nikki Marzak, a genocide scholar and survivor advocate. And just a reminder that if you or someone that you love needs to talk to someone about issues that have been brought up by the content of this show, please contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counseling Service on one 800 737 or alternatively, you can contact the National Crisis Support and Suicide Prevention Service, Lifeline, on 131114. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03-9419-8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigre. Tigre. I'm Hope Matumbu, and I hope you can tune in again next time.